2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 18. Let me read this passage. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now we begin our examination of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 two weeks ago. Saw that it that it lays the groundwork. Paul's been talking about this calling on the Corinthian church. Chapter 3 lays the groundwork for that calling. He's, he's been leading up to this. And the overall premise of chapter 3 is this. We are made ministers to the glory of God. That, that the overarching premise on all of chapter 3. We are made ministers to the glory of God. And that premise was rolled out by Paul in two major themes. The unwritten grace of God appears in verses 1 through 6, and the unveiled glory of God is revealed in verses 7 through 18, the passage we're in today. So we first looked closely at the unwritten grace of God, and we thought that it might be a good idea to give a nice definition, something we could all grasp, of what grace, in particular the grace of God is. And here's how we defined it. The grace of God is favor that flows from God solely because of who He is and without regard for the worth or merit of the one to whom it flows. Now, what we saw in that was that the heart transformation, the changes that a believer goes through, are actually the evidence of the grace of God working in them. As we're changed, as we begin to live a different life, as we become the new creatures that God's making us into, that becomes the evidence of the Holy Spirit in us and the fact that we've received grace. So, so this morning, we're going to look at the unveiled glory of God. And just like we did with the grace, so that we can fully comprehend everything that Paul is teaching us, I thought it would be a good idea to define glory. Now, we all have some concept of what the glory of God is, but I thought if we could get this into bedrock that we'd have a better understanding of what Paul's telling us. So here it is. The glory of God is the supernaturally manifested, radiant, pure, holy, and divine presence of God. Now, I tried to choose those words very carefully. They're not there frivolously. 
they all build upon the character and nature of what this glory of God is. So it is supernatural. It is a physical manifestation when the glory of God falls upon us. There's, there's some physicality to it. It is radiant. It glows. And we'll talk about that. It is pure. It is undefiled. It is absolutely holy and uncompromising. And it is the divine presence of God. So, the last time we met, Paul taught us about grace. This week he's going to show us how that grace reveals the glory of God. And he's going to do it by displaying seven contrasts. There are seven contrasts in this passage between the law of Moses, the old covenant, between that and the new covenant. Today's sermon is entitled Unveiled Grace. This is part five in our series, I Am Content. We started with Joshua. The angry prophet, the question Joshua posed to us is, if you really believe God is sovereign, why are you so angry? So we're contrasting Joshua with Paul, who's content in all circumstances. And that's why we're taking a close look at 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to lay all seven of these contrasts out. They're a little bit complicated. It might not make a lot of sense to you, so I'm just going to ask you to stick with me. And at the end, we'll try and bring it all together in some fashion that makes sense to you. So, Paul begins by laying this first contrast out between the Old Covenant and New Covenant in verses 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, Paul has already mentioned in that first section, in verse 6, that the old covenant brought death, and the new covenant brings life. We'll see that theme repeated over and over again here. So, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant has already been firmly established. This would be a little bit of a problem for the Jews. Now, not all of Paul's readers are Jewish, but they would struggle a little bit with this because their relationship with God was defined by the Old Covenant. And at the heart of the Old Covenant is the Mosaic Law, capital L. So Paul and Timothy after him would be called to minister to both Jews and Gentiles. So Paul wants to make it clear just so that there's no misunderstanding, so that the Jews aren't going, well, what, what happened to the Old Covenant? Uh, but he, he wants the, the Gentiles to understand as well that, that, that this Old Covenant, the one that's written on stone, that covenant reveals the glory of God. Now, this is going to challenge us in our thinking a little bit, okay? But that covenant reveals the glory of God. And we see that in Exodus chapter 34. When Moses descends Mount Sinai, he's got the tablets in his hands. Everybody's heard everything that's been going on up there. The mountain's been shaking. There's black smoke up there. There's lightning and thunder, and they can hear the voice of God booming down below. It is so terrifying that the people won't go anywhere near the mountain for fear that they're going to die. Moses comes walking down the mountain. He's got the tablets in his hand, and his face shines. And the scripture tells us that his face shines because he had been talking with God. He'd been in the presence of God. What Paul's doing here is he he wants to make sure that everybody understands he's not minimizing the law. He's not minimizing the old covenant. 
He wants Timothy to know that the old covenant shone with God's glory. We need to take a moment and think about that because that's not in line with conventional Christian thinking for the most part. The law reveals God's glory. It is The law is the supernaturally manifested, radiant, pure, holy, and divine presence of God. Now, glory is the primary emphasis of this passage. It shows up 11 times in these verses. The glory of God fell on Moses. Moses was was the mediator between God and man. He was imperfect, but he was a mediator between God and man. He, He came bearing a law that can only bring death, but it's a law that shines with the glory of God. Now, I understand some folks struggle with that idea. How can death shine with glory? Those who would struggle with that, I want to be honest with you on this. I've struggled with it in the past. But my struggle, I I was actually struggling with a self-centered perspective on Scripture. We've talked about this before. We, We need to read the Bible to find out about God, not find out about ourselves. When we read the Bible to find out about ourselves, we we start getting a little wonky on things. Okay, so we start trying to make sense out of what God's doing. We say things to ourselves like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would death bring glory to God? Why would God want me to die? But that's not why we read the Bible. We read the Bible to find out about God, not ourselves. So when the law arrives at Sinai, the consequence to us is death. But i got to tell you something, that's not the important part. Because the important part of the law is that the nature of the law is God's holiness. It reveals God's holiness. The law sets the standard for having a relationship with a living God. And it is pure holiness. And nothing else will do. God doesn't compromise in His holiness. And so, God causes Moses' face to shine so that his people will know that Moses has been in the presence of God and that these tablets are authored by him. Do you remember what happened at Sinai? He was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people went to Aaron and went, we don't know about this guy Moses. He's been gone for a long time. Okay, I, I mean, we find out how fickle people are, don't we? God got them through the desert. They're at the base of the mountain. Now they want a party. The big guy's gone. I mean, it could just as easily, Moses could have come down the mountain with these two tablets and said, God wrote these. And everybody would go, yeah, sure, Moses. Yeah, what'd you take a chisel up there with you? Okay, but Moses is shining. See, the evidence of having been in God's presence is born on Moses' face. This glory... This magnificent glory that Moses demonstrates here is a glory such as has not been seen since creation and since the time in the garden. God's physical presence right there with his people. But Paul wants to show something about that glory. And what he wants to show is that the glory of Christ and the work that Christ does on the cross is even greater 
than the glory demonstrated by the law. He's not trying to minimize the law. He's actually elevating the glory of the law and saying, well, you think that was something? Wait till you see the glory of Jesus Christ and the work He's done on the cross. So Paul calls this new greater glory the ministry of the Spirit. The, the word for spirit here is the Greek word pneuma. In a scriptural setting, it, it generally refers to the Spirit of God. But if a strict translation, it, it's the spirit of breath. It describes the very breath breathed by God. It is one with God. And to, to that culture in that time, they would have understood that breath means life. So when we, when we talk about the, the ministry of the Spirit, we're, we're talking about the Spirit of life. So we have the Old Covenant, which brings condemnation, death, and the New Covenant, which brings life. So the first contrast that Paul wants us to see is a contrast between death and life. The Old Covenant brought death. The new one brings life. And that life comes in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 begins to describe our second contrast. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Again, we have this, this affirmation from Paul, this recognition from Paul that the ministry of condemnation reveals the glory of God. But that glory pales in comparison to the glory that's revealed in the ministry of righteousness. Now, the righteousness that Paul is talking about here is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And we know that's true because Jesus Christ was the only righteous one. There are none righteous but him. So, I want you to notice something here. We would, we would never realize how glorious, how more glorious the ministry of righteousness is unless we knew the results of the ministry of condemnation. We would never know how supremely glorious the ministry of Christ would be unless we understood the ministry of the law. And let me try and illustrate this for you. A number of years ago, Kelly and I, I, Kelly had a fairly decent car. It was okay. I was driving around in these cars I was buying for 500 bucks. And the one thing that these cars had in common, I'd have it for six or seven months or so, then I'd move on to the next one, was they didn't have any paint. Paint was flying off. I'd go down the road, there'd be, there'd be like snow behind me. And I went to Kelly and I said, all I want is a car that has some paint on it. The cars I had were okay. You know, we counted them a blessing from God, but I really wanted to have a car that didn't, when I washed it, that the paint didn't come off. So I went shopping. The last car we had just got on its last legs. I took it to trade it in. You know, I was in the car business for a long time. I know the look on people's face. They would look at my trade and go, hmm. And, and, and they're thinking, how am I going to tell this guy this car's not worth anything? I know, I know. So I, I bought this used car. And you know what? It was great. It was a nice used car. It looked good. And I was just so pleased to have a car that had paint on it. And we drove that for four or five years or so. And it started needing some repair. And we had to make some, some hard decisions. Many of you have been through this. Did we buy a used car? Did we buy a new car? We stumbled on a couple of deals and everything. So I traded that in on a new car, on a brand new car. Now, the old car was good. The old car was great. But it just didn't compare to the new car. 
The new car looked good. The new car had that, that new car smell. And because I liked the old car, I really appreciated the new car. I appreciated the new car because I knew that the old car was a blessing from God. The new one was an even greater blessing from God. Now, that's kind of what Paul's trying to say here. I mean, the blessings he's talking about have a lot more impact than anything worldly could promise us. So I, I don't want to say that Paul's talking about the glory of God and comparing it to a car. But we're trying to give some perspective here. So, we will never appreciate the greater blessing until we embrace and give thanks for the lesser blessing. Did you catch that? We'll never appreciate the greater blessing until we're thankful and embrace the lesser blessing. We will never appreciate the life we have in Christ until we understand and fear the death that comes with the law. The law brings condemnation. The new covenant brings life. But that life comes through the righteousness of Christ. So the second contrast that Paul wants to emphasize here is the ministry of condemnation compared to the ministry of righteousness. Now verse 10 talks about our next contrast where everybody following me so far? Because it's going to get complicated real quick. Okay? Verse 10 reveals our next contrast and where Paul compares the glory of the Old Covenant to that of the New. Now we're talking about nuances and difference here. The glory of the Old is so much less than that of the New that it seems not to even exist. Like it's not even there. It's like comparing the light of a candle to the noonday sun. You take a candle into a dark room in the middle of the night and it looks pretty bright. It lights up the entire room. You take that same candle outside at noon when the sun is high in the sky and you you can't even tell if the candle's lit. That's the comparison Paul's making here. The, The third contrast is between the fading glory of the old and the rising glory of the new covenant. What once seemed glorious and what surpasses it, the glory of the old, what surpasses the glory of the old does not endure The glory of the new is permanent. Keep an eye on what Paul's doing here. It'd be easy in the middle of a chapter like this to forget that Paul has an overall teaching that he wants to convey to the Corinthians. Bear in the mind that he's trying to show the Corinthian church how to live the Christian life. If you remember, he's trying to teach them how to deal with with tension, how to deal with hardship and disappointment. We see our fourth contrast in Verse 11, where Paul tells them the former glory was temporary and the new glory is permanent. Paul's telling them that the old covenant was never intended to save them. It wasn't there to deliver them from their sins. It was never eternal. It was not there to redeem them. Later on we read in the book of Hebrews where the the writer of Hebrews says, Did you think that the blood of bulls and goats would save you? No, that wasn't, wasn't what that was all about. It was never meant to reveal the fullness of God's glory. It was meant to reveal part of God's glory and prepare them for an even greater glory. It was the foundation. The Old Covenant is the foundation of what was to come. And it's just like looking at a building site. 
You know, when they're putting up a new building, the first thing they do is they dig this big, ugly hole. And then they go in and they put a foundation. And you look at the foundation, you kind of get a glimpse of what the building would look like, and you kind of have an imagination that says, well, I think it's going to be a big building, it's got a big foundation and everything. But the foundation, we only see it for a little while. Eventually, the building will be built upon it, and once we see the building and everything the building was intended to be, the foundation kind of fades from memory. That's what Paul's describing here. The visibility of the foundation is temporary. The visibility of the building itself is permanent, at least as permanent as an earthly thing can be. So the fifth contrast. This is an encouraging one, and that's in verses 12 and 13. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, what Paul's doing here is actually a short exposition of a passage in Exodus chapter 34. And that is between verses 29 and 35. I'm going to read it so we have a context for what Paul's doing. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Now there's a lot of metaphor here. There's a lot of practical things that are happening. These things actually happen, but they're symbolic as well. In short, what Paul is contrasting here is the, the veiled face of God's glory with the boldness of the ministry of Christ, with the boldness of the ministry of the gospel. Moses hid his face. The people, and, and what, what we want to see in that is the people were unable to look directly upon the glory of God. They couldn't be directly in his presence. There was something between them and God. But there was nothing between Moses and God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it meant that Moses was the mediator. I mean, we see these patterns in the Scripture. He represented the people before God. But as, as good as Moses was, Moses never really looked directly upon the face of God. We know that because in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And what does God do? He takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of a rock. And he says, don't look at me until I pass by. When I pass by, then you can look on me. So even Moses is not a perfect mediator, but we see the principle there. That Moses has been in the presence of God. He's shining with God's glory. And the people, the people cannot experience the direct presence of God's glory. They never got to see the fullness of that glory. For the people, that glory was obscure. 
It's like standing outside somebody's house. I know some of you people do this. Stop it. And looking into the living room, you know, when they have those translucent drapes. And you can see there's something in there, but you can't really see what it is. That was how looking at God's glory was. It was obscured. You couldn't make out the detail. It's hard to pick out anything. If you look hard at the law, you can see the reflection of God in it. You can see the character and nature of God in it. But God's glory is veiled in the law. It wasn't fully revealed. There was very little detail in the law. In order to see its fullness, the curtain has to be drawn back. It has to be removed. Paul says Christ has drawn the curtain back, allowing us to see the full glory of God and allowing us to come boldly into His presence, allowing us to, to stand and bask in the glory of God. The fifth contrast that we've been talking about here is between Moses and the need for a veil, Moses and the need for a curtain, and the boldness with which we can approach the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Now that leads right to our sixth contrast, which is found in verse 14. But their minds were hardened, for to this day and when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Paul says their minds were hardened. Now, let me just do an aside here. Because we see uh, the word minds, we see the word heart, uh, we, we see the word soul in Scripture. They're, they're all the same thing. Matter of fact, they all come from the same root word. So we don't want to look at this and go, oh, mind, uh, heart, and soul are three separate entities within the human being. That's not, that, that's not what Scripture pervades here. They are interchangeable. Paul could just as easily, easily said, their hearts are hardened, just as it was said of Pharaoh. The reader would have read it the same way. What Paul means to convey to them is this. Those who do not believe in Christ, those who willfully reject Him, turn their back on Him, see an obscured and a distorted glory. They never look directly upon it. The sixth contrast is between the veiled glory of Moses and the law and the unveiled glory found in Christ. Our final contrast can be seen in verses 15 and 16. And here's where Paul begins to get a little bit more personal in his teaching. The seventh contrast is very similar to the sixth one, but I like to think that Paul wants to repeat it, wants to embellish it a little bit so he can expand this just just a bit. He says in verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The there in their hearts refers to those whose hearts have been hardened. Those who aren't listening. Back in Moses' day, Moses gave them the law. And what did they do? They refused to obey it. So there was a veil placed between them and the glory of God. They were unable to see His glory. For a lot of people in Paul's day, nothing had really changed all that much. Matter of fact, you can take a look at the situation and say, well, it's gotten worse. They hear the law. Maybe they even revere the law. Maybe they have a high regard for the law, a high respect for it. But they revere the law. Listen carefully. They revere the law for what the law can do for them. Okay? 
They, review the, they revere the law for what the law can do for them, not for the glory that it reveals. For them, obeying the law was a way to garner God's favor. Now, I don't think we have to stretch too far to say that we understand exactly what that means. So, because this has been around for thousands of years. There are folks that believe that they can follow the law, that they can conform to the rules and find the favor of God. Their reasoning goes something like this. Tell me if this is true or not. The better I behave, the more God will like me. The better I behave, the more God will like me. That's a nice concept. In human terms, it's reasonable. In human terms, it seems to be fair. But if we think about it biblically, we have to go down a path I don't think we want to go down. Because if we believe that, it creates a huge problem for us. Because if we believe that, we also have to believe this. You can't take one without the other. If I behave badly, God will not like me. I mean, if we believe that if we behave good, God will like us, the only, the only other thing we can accept is if I behave bad, God's not going to like me. And I've got to tell you something. For those people who live their lives this way, God becomes some super cosmic superhero sitting up in heaven holding a set of scales in his hands. And every time we misbehave, he drops a pebble on the bad side of the scale. And every time we do something good, he drops another pebble over on the good side of the scales. So these people live their lives desperately trying to keep the balance in their favor. You see what I'm talking about? To them, the world is black and white. Everything is right or wrong. Everything is either good or bad. And, and, and if they practice this long enough, they get pretty good at that. They get pretty good at identifying what's good and bad. The bad thing about that is that they begin to impose their idea on right and wrong upon the people around them. They go, well, why are you doing that? Don't you know that's wrong? I've got a sin in my life that I'm struggling with. Well, stop doing that. That's wrong. Don't do that anymore. So they begin to preach this good and bad philosophy, this good and bad theology, and, and they judge themselves harshly. But you know what? They judge the people around them even more harshly. By Paul's time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have elevated this whole practice to an art level. I mean, they've refined all the laws. They've added 600 or so of them. And they made him so complex that you have no choice but to, to decide that if I'm going to follow the law, I have to do precisely this. There's no grace. There's no mercy. They understand the law, but they never see God's glory. There's a veil covering God's glory. And they will never see it unless, as verse 16 tells us, they turn to the Lord. See, that's, that's our seventh contrast. They either rely on themselves or they return to the Lord. We need to think about this. Because Paul is saying, in other words, unless they turn to the Lord, they're left to their own devices. 
unless they turn to the Lord, they're left to their own devices. They're on their own. How does that happen? How does it happen when somebody, somebody believes they're pursuing God and they're really out there on their own? Follow me on this. The glory of the Lord is seen in the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. The ultimate glory of the Lord is in the redemption of His people through the work of Christ. If you reject Him, you reject His glory. If you reject His glory, you reject His salvation. Those who think the law can save them, those who believe God is weighing their lives on the scales event by event, those who believe that God is judging them moment to moment, they don't need a Savior. I mean, why would they want a Savior? All they really need to do is get those scales tipped in the right way. So, I say they're out there on their own. They're not saved by grace. They believe they're saved by their own actions and behavior. You see that? They believe that, that they are their own Savior. They believe that they're redeemed by the decisions that they make. Got to ask who's sitting on the throne there. For them, God is not looking at His Son. We sing it in the hymn. He looked on Him and pardoned me. For those people, God's not looking on the sun. He's looking at them. He's waiting for them to call the shots. He's waiting for them to make their decision. He's waiting for them to do something good or do something bad. It's all on them. And they're on their own. And God is helpless in heaven waiting for them to decide whether or not they're going to be good or bad, whether or not they're going to go in the right direction. I told you that was a lot of information. Let's see if we can tie it all together. First, we'll step back and take a look at the big picture again. I want to look at what Paul's doing here. He's, te he's teaching them about dealing with tension, dealing with disappointment, dealing with anger, telling them to rely on Christ in them. Telling them that that's what he, that's what Paul does. He relies on Christ in him. Uh, and he's willing, Paul is willing, to rely on Christ in them. And the big question that hangs over all this is, are they willing to rely on Christ in them? Are they willing to follow this ministry of the Spirit? Are they going to rely on themselves? Now that brings to the surface a bonus contrast, a hidden eighth contrast. It's not really there in the text it's more inferred, it's implied, than the other seven are. So it's not delineated in the passage here. Here's a question Paul's asking. Are they going to rely on their own works? Or are they going to rely on the work of Christ? And here are all the implications that go with that. Are they going to act and behave the way they did before? Or are they going to demonstrate the change that they've been going through? Are they going to be led by themselves or led by the Spirit? Isn't that what Paul's been asking all along? I mean, that's how we got to this point in chapter 3. Do they believe him or do they believe the false teachers that have shown up? Do they rely on the changes they've been through or do they rely on their feelings of anger and disappointment? 
Do they trust Christ in them or do they trust themselves? Do they embrace this gospel of love or do they embrace this gospel of anger and hate that these false teachers are are espousing? Do they long to feed their anger or do they long to put God on display? Do they have a desire to put their change out front and say, it's not me who did it, it's God who's done this? And if you think about those things, you'll see that that's exactly what Paul's been talking about in these seven contrasts here. Look at the contrast. Them and God. Them and God. Death and life. Condemnation and righteousness. Fading glory and surpassing glory. Temporary glory and permanent glory. A veiled approach to God and boldly approaching God. Veiled glory and unveiled glory. Rely on themselves or turn to God. Exhibit their own works or exhibit the works of Jesus Christ. Do the Corinthians get this? Paul thinks they do. Why? Why does Paul think they do? Why does Paul have this trust? Why is he risking his reputation? Why is he risking his relationship with this young, new church that seems to just be giving him problems every time he turns around. Why don't he just, you know what, you guys go do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to go down to the next town and start another church. This is too much trouble. Why is he challenging them this way? Here's what Paul's counting on, loved ones. This is what Paul is staking everything on. He's counting on the unveiled glory of God leading the Corinthian church to make the right decision. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The first thing that Paul wants them to know is they're no longer bound. No longer bound to what? No longer bound to themselves, brothers and sisters. Their problem is themselves. Remember, we talked about that. In the beginning of chapter 3. Their problem is their struggle is inward. It's not outward. They're no longer bound to a world painted in harsh blacks and whites. They're no longer bound to a law that reveals only part of God's glory. They're no longer bound, but they're free. Now, I like that news. I like, I like to hear that I'm free. But free for what? Free for what? A lot of people would tell you, you're free to do anything. There are no consequences. Jesus paid it all. Don't worry about it. You're free to do anything. That's not freedom at all. I want to challenge you on that. If if, if you've heard that teaching and embraced it, I want to challenge you on that. That freedom is all about them. And that's not freedom at all. That's exactly what Christ has freed them from. Themselves. From their desires and their aims and their goals and their self-centeredness. So they're not free to do anything. Now, because of the new covenant, they are free to rely on Christ. Free to cast their cares and concerns totally upon Him. Free to be transformed. Free to fall into His arms. To find the rest that they need. Free to shake off the chains of getting it right. Free to depend on the work of Christ. For what? For their salvation. Not on their own work, but on the work of Christ. Free to put Him on display and not themselves. 
It's all there in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul's saying, you were glorious. Wait till you see what Christ has for you now. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. The Corinthian church is being transformed into the image of Christ. Paul could trust in that because it's the work of Christ, not the Corinthians. And Paul knew the truth. I mean, he wrote it in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul wasn't trusting in the Corinthians. He was trusting in Christ in the Corinthians. And that trust, that question that he asked them, do you trust in Christ in you? That rings down to us here today in this sanctuary. Do we trust in Christ in us? I mean, we're told that when we're saved that the Spirit comes and dwells inside us. Do we trust in that? Do we trust Him enough to set aside our law, our rights and wrongs? Set aside our rules and regulations to set aside our old selves, to set aside our fading temporary glory and embrace this new creature that he's, he's building inside each one of us? Do we trust him enough to embrace the freedom that he brings? Do we trust him enough to embrace the unveiled glory of God? To stand in the heavenly place and shine with his presence. To show the world the testimony that we have been in the presence of Christ and His Father. He's making us. He's forming us into ministers of His gospel for His glory, not for ours. And in that, in that we can find freedom. You know why? We can find freedom in that. It means the pressure's off. It means all the pressure's off. We don't have to get it right. We don't have to be correct. Christ got it right for us. And we rely on Him. And we go into the presence of the Father in and through Him. Now what all this means is that we're going to be challenged. I mean, there are areas in our life and in our walk that will be challenging for us if we're going to embrace this. First thing that will be challenged are preconceptions of who God is and how He works in our lives. Do you ever think that the law revealed the glory of God? That's a challenge. We'll be challenged on His Word. Are we going to receive the Word for what it says? Or are we just going to kind of glaze over the parts we don't like? I don't know about that part. I just know about this part over here. He'll be challenged on his word, challenged on the character and nature of God. We'll be challenged, like the Corinthians are being challenged, on whether or not they're going to be directed by their feelings or directed by the truth of God and his word. We'll be challenged to show trust, 
to show love and compassion, not just to those people who are like us, but to people who are not like us. As a matter of fact, to people who are radically not like us. It's easy to love those who love us. Can we love those who don't love us? Can we love the unlovable? We'll be challenged to reach out and move beyond our comfort zones and trust God and the work of Christ in us to be effective in how we reach out to people and how we display this transformation to Him. We're going to be challenged on all levels on whether or not we're going to live a life that is centered on us or centered on Jesus Christ. See, that's where the gold is. That's where the unveiled glory is in Jesus Christ. He's in the presence of God. Everything else allows that veil to fall in between us and God. And then we don't see Him clearly. 